Good morning. Um, if you notice, I've already renamed you, and so far you're the only one here. So I'm not sure if anybody else will come on a Saturday morning. This is, I think, the first time I've done this on a Saturday morning. Like, try it out. <laughs> but anyway, it could be one-on-one. -on -one. Um, we'll kind of give people a few minutes to um, log on. But it, meanwhile, if there's anything that you are wanting to talk about, let me know. We could get rolling. Um, I was just on the treadmill and listening to this organizational podcast, and I'm so jazzed, not only because I want to organize my house, but also because there are so many parallels between like organizing your home and kind of like cleaning up things cognitively and behaviorally in your own like life. It's kind of coachy, actually. It's pretty cool. And I can see how the two complement each other really well. So guess the one thing that I have to figure out is how to get my family on board <laughs> with the throwing the crap away. So anyway, um, all right, it's seven o'clock. And again, I'm not sure like how useful Saturday morning will be, but I hope we get something really good to talk about. Um, let's see. All righty, let's see. Okay, so we have a comment from Winter Dreams it says, I've been fascinated by the stuff you're learning in your trauma course. Happy to talk about that. Oh my gosh, girl. <laughs> Don't even get me started. Um, this stuff is blowing my mind. So I can uh, just like vomit a bunch of information at you about trauma, or we could like talk like in a more, I don't know, directed way if there's like, something specifically on your mind. So let me start with a question. Is, are you somebody who could identify um, being somebody who experienced childhood trauma or um, anything like that? You don't have to talk about it, obviously, but okay. So then this will be really fascinating. Um, so many people have experienced childhood trauma. I mean, it's incredibly common and trauma itself is kind of a vague, like it's a vague word because it could mean anything from, I crashed my motorcycle and lost my left arm in a, in a wreck, or it could mean <clears throat> chronic sustained neglect. It could mean physical abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, and then like basically every flavor in between and on top of that, sometimes there's an experience that occurs that one wouldn't necessarily think is traumatic, but it just depends on how the person's brain responds to the event. So <clears throat> if something happens and somebody responds in a way that kind of creates a disconnection for them and their brain is kind of having a neurological response to that, that indicates that it's traumatic for them, and somebody else who is experiencing the exact same thing might have thought that that experience was thrilling or, you know, fun or whatever. So <clears throat> I think it's really important to consider that even if you don't define yourself as somebody who's had like, you know, Oprah worthy um, childhood trauma, that maybe still some people could have experienced events in their lives that would contribute to the way their nervous system developed. 
Okay, so that's kind of the preface. Now, <clears throat> what I think is so fascinating about it is how it relates to what we experience in life as surgeons, particularly with the ideas surrounding why we went into surgery in the first place, um, the experience of surgical education, which I don't think is I don't think is absolutely traumatic, but I think that broadly many programs, the way surgical education is conducted and delivered is actually quite traumatic because there's a lot of shaming, there's a lot of um, threatening environments. It's traumatic just experiencing other people's worst day of their lives over and over and over again. It's the fear of not pleasing the attending, um, so one of the things I say about orthopedic training is it seems like residents are more worried about what their attending is going to say, rather than worried about how to frame their own, um, like thought process and, um, try to develop their own way to approach problems in a systematic way. It's like, they're more worried about managing egos than they are worried about, um, learning orthopedics. So um, winter dream, I'm just going to go here. And so please interrupt if there's like, if you want me to slow down or if, um, there's something that kind of sparks for you, or, um, if there's something specific you want to talk about, because I just want to kind of lay like a little bit of groundwork and then maybe we can go from there. <clears throat> okay. So that's why we go into surgery, which could be a myriad of reasons. And the experience of the education, and then you go into practice and it's like re-traumatizing. It's all these things over and over and over again that are re-traumatizing, not to mention the fact that we're chronically sleep deprived, chronically over, overstimulated um, stress, just multitudes of stress, managing hospital organization, administration issues, managing patients and patient, um, feedback reports and Yelp type situations. Um, some of the press gainy stuff is just all of it just ends up being re-traumatizing over and over and over again. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what the fuck, why are we doing this? <clears throat> well, I know why I am and why I haven't quit. It's because when I go into the operating room, it's a safe space for me. And I recognize that when I went in for my C-section, I was in labor for 19 hours and things weren't progressing. And finally they were like, well, we think you need a C-section. And I'm like, hallelujah, let's get going. Because as soon as we rolled into the operating room, it's like, I was calm. I knew everything was going to be okay. So I'm so comfortable and feel so safe in the operating room. So that's number one. And I think it probably is because of the illusion of control that I have in an operating room. And I'm it's so familiar to me. Number two, it's a flow state area for me. So people who are able to achieve flow state in their life where it's like the rest of the world melts away and you are so engrossed in the task at hand that you're able to connect on a, like a real time level in the moment. Um, I just, I have that over and over and over again. And then the third thing is teaching residents. I mean, residents are sometimes the reason I get up and go to the hospital because these young minds are so sharp and they're humans, they're human beings, and they're just trying to be the next generation 
And I just really feel a responsibility to show up as a healthy person for them. So they know things don't have to be the way they have always been. Like there is an alternative way to exist. Um, and the collaboration that I've experienced with the residents kind of showing up as this person um, has just been so different than in the past when I've just been like pissed at them for not doing things the way I want them to or whatever. <clears throat> so it's just been so much more creative and collaborative. And I think helping them to understand that, you know, the whole purpose of this experience is for them to learn, learn the job, learn how to think critically, learn how to solve problems, learn how to expand their own brains, learn how to expand their own capacity for the whole experience of being a surgeon. And I mean, I just don't know if I can walk away from that at this red hot moment. But anyway, I got off on a tangent there, Winter Dream. Help me, help me, help reel me back in here. Uh, maybe I can now tie it into traditional coaching. That pleasing other. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> okay. So I love this idea. Winter Dreams is one of our beloved members. And so she's going to come on. We're just going to have a conversation. If we get some coaching in, great. If it if we don't, that's okay too. Because sometimes, especially in trauma, the the antidote. So trauma is disconnection. Trauma is is the lack. So the antidote to that, to that is connection. And so sometimes all it is, is a conversation. Let's give it a week of a whirl. I think I'm kind of jacked right now because I'm very excited. Okay. Chat allowed to talk. Good morning. Good morning. I'm just like very excited to talk about this topic. <laughs> And maybe we'll go off on one tangent and then a little bit, we'll go off on another one. Who knows? Tangents are awesome. You said have kind of um, resonated, but it's great. Uh, the first one that I kind of wanted to go into a little bit, um, the when you said about like pleasing others in residency and in training, um, mm -hmm. like you're worried almost sometimes more about that reaction you're going to get from your attending rather than just saying, this is the right thing for the patient. Like, you know, this is what I want to do instead of thinking, what does my attending want me to want to do? Right. Um, I definitely found myself the last few years of training, kind of catching myself falling into that of like, don't try and pick what your attending is going to do. Pick what you think is actually right for the patient. Mm -hmm. um, but it kind of ties back to what we talked about um, with coaching on Thursday um, with Kelly, but you were there, um, of that fear of failure. And I think that's, what's actually kind of causing it was I was so used to having somebody in training of, I had a reaction. And even if it wasn't necessarily a good one, it was a lack of a bad one. Um, cause you know, how surgeons are, there's not always that positive feedback, but there's the lack of the negative feedback. Yeah. Like, well, this doesn't suck. Yeah. Or like you're doing something and you're like, well, this can't be terrible because they're not stopping me. Yeah. Like, this is probably the right thing that now that I'm in practice, you don't have that. And yeah. so that safety net is gone. And it's like, I don't know where to get that feedback from that. I got so used to having other than, oh, well, let's see how the patient does. Um, right. And it kind of like, 
in, in that same vein, it's like, are we really setting residents up to be attendings? Like, are we giving them skills? Like the safety net exists basic. Well, I I can't speak for all programs because I think they can be different. Right. Um, But I think it's not uncommon, right. For the safety net to be in place until you graduate. And then it's like, Oh no, I'm alone. Yeah. I mean, I think our, my residency did a nice, a very good job of training and I have the knowledge and I definitely had some experiences of, you know, doing things without an attending always right over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. Um, but there still was that, you know, Hey, I'm taking this patient needs to go to the operating room and then like, Oh, they're going to, you know, come join or they're going to whatever, like they're still there. Um, it was never like you just went like hours by yourself of if you're doing something major. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so in practice, you, it's totally different. It is totally different. And so you mentioned an emotion of fear. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means for you? Um, you said fear of just, failure. Yeah. I get so worried of not doing the right thing for the patient that it just, and not to beat a dead horse because we talked about it on Thursday, but um, I just kind of ruminate and kind of get, can get stuck on that sometimes of, is this the right thing? And sometimes in medicine, you know, there's a couple different ways to do things. That's why there's not, you know, one perfect way for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get stuck in that of like, what's the best way? Um, even though maybe, you know, both of these options <clears throat> work out fine or both of them are reasonable options. Yeah. Um, And I have a hard time like trusting myself and um, my training that I, I do know what to do and kind of moving forward sometimes. I'll say it when I'm in the moment, I actually do okay, but it's the like lead up of that, you know, hour or two before you're going to the operating room or while you're waiting for that transfer to come or whatever of, ah, what if this happens? What if this happens? And yeah. So that anticipate that anticipatory anxiety. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is very common too. So <clears throat> we did talk on Thursday a lot about, you know, like the traditional coaching, um, you know, like the top down model of, you mm-hmm. know, we think like, you know, something is going to go wrong and then we feel anxious and then, you know, we, we ruminate and then basically we, we make it as if something has already gone wrong, even though nothing has happened yet. That's, that's like kind of a brief sort of generic model there. Um, so that's like the top down approach and the trauma approach is more of a bottom up where you start actually in the body and you start with the emotion. And it's really interesting how, humans have adapted, um, these like survival skills, which really is what they are in the, there's four categories, like traditional survival, survival mechanisms, but there are other, um, survival, uh, like maladaptive survival styles. So let me not get too into the weeds here, but it's the four main 
survival skills are uh, fight or flight, freeze or fawn. And often we, we know what we're doing. Like you can kind of like see, okay, this is, I'm for sure frozen right now. Like you can, if you think about what it is that your response is, you can identify it. Like people who fight are like the ones that get angry and get belligerent and you know, whatever else. I see that a lot in my own operating room, the fight response. Um, so fight, flight, flight is, flight is just when you're trying to escape and you shut down, uh, like try to flee or leave. Um, or avoid. And then, um, freeze is what I just mentioned. It's like that paralyzing thing where you're like, I think rumination kind of leads to that frozen thing because you're like stuck. And then, um, fawn is people pleasing. It's when you just like, sort of like fall all over yourself to make other people happy in an effort to kind of quell your own anxiety. So that's that. And then there are these other, um, I have to go grab a book because it's such a new concept to me that I haven't memorized it yet, but it has to do with how people learn how to wire up their nervous system from childhood. And that if, if things are disrupted at some point, then they might have these maladaptive, um, sort of, uh, survival styles in adulthood. And so that may or may not come to play if somebody has been, um, a victim of, previous life trauma. So um, the reason why I wanted to mention that is because if you're experiencing, say, like intense anxiety or fear or something like that, um, just kind of working within the emotion can help balance your nervous system, which then helps to ease out of that sort of anticipatory anxiety, which is kind of like a cycle that sort of feeds itself, you know? Um, And each time we're able to do that, each time you're able to regulate your nervous system, you actually increase your capacity for that type of stress. It's really interesting. So it's like a muscle to, to build. And so each time you practice regulating your nervous system, then then each time you're able to handle a little bit more and a little bit more. So I I love that because it's not only helps in the moment, but it helps build your capacity to tolerate that in the future too. Um, Okay. I just went off on a tangent again. Can you like help me help me? No, I love, I mean, I loved it. (laughs) Great. Let me go grab my book really quickly and then think about if you want to talk about uh, that still. So this is one of the required reading for my, oh my gosh, I'm having such a bad hair day. I'm traumatized by my hair. Um, so the, this is called healing developmental trauma. You can see right there. It's kind of a textbook, but it reads pretty well. And, um, okay. Let me just back up to, and say like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just completely obsessed with this stuff. And it is required reading for my, um, trauma recovery coaching course. Um, so basically what this outlines is we all have core needs and as babies, children, young adults, yada, yada, we like throughout our lives, these core needs need to be met. And the, if you've had some kind of disruption in having your core need met, whether it was 
an environment that failed you or like an injury or an accident or whatever, or like maybe residency, it basically threatens your, um, your, the competency of your adaptation. So the core needs are these, I'm just going to read them to you. It's connection, attunement. So attunement is the ability to kind of like, um, like, it's different than connection and that it's the ability to like be with another human and kind of like zone in on, on their kind of their vibration, if you will. It's like, you know, when two people are really in sync, um, trust, autonomy, and then love and sexuality. So <clears throat> when those connection, those core needs are threatened and they're in your, you don't build healthy responses then you develop survival adaptations. So for example, if your core need of connection wasn't met, then the survival adaptation would be that you basically just shut down your body from social engagement, like you disconnect yourself. And then as the patient, or I'm sorry, as the person becomes an adult, there's a strategy used to protect that relationship. Um, so, or to, to protect that ability. And so basically children will give up the sen their sense of existence. They'll disconnect and attempt to become invisible. And I can see how this also happens in adulthood. It's, it's like, you can see when somebody is acting in a way that you're like, oh gosh, like now that I know these things, I'm like, oh gosh, I wonder if they're, they do this because they have like this maladaptive, um, strategy that that's the only thing they don't know how to do. But this is really interesting. So for connection, you shut down your ability to engage. And so you disconnect and attempt to become invisible. If it's attunement, basically you shut down your ability to even express your personal needs, which I can see that a lot. Um, children will give up their own needs in order to focus on the needs of others. How often do we see that in mm -hmm. adults? And then um, trust is basically shutting down your trust and healthy interdependence. So basically a person will give up their, oh, this is good. They give up their authenticity in order to be who their parents want them to be. Or like, say in the case of a resident, you give up your authenticity to be who your attending wants you to be. So you end up being like this other role. So for a parent and child, it's like best friends, super sports star, confident, et cetera. But I mean, think about how often we morph ourselves to become what the attending wants us to be. Um, autonomy is where you basically foreclose on your authentic expression and respond with what they think is expected of them. So this translates to giving up direct expressions of independence in order to not feel abandoned or crushed. So like you basically just don't speak your mind because you're afraid that's the, whoever you're speaking to is like not going to react well and you'll be, and you'll feel abandoned and crushed if they don't respond to you well. And how often do we do these things? It's crazy. Um, and then the love sexuality is foreclosing on love and heart connection, um, sexuality, integration of love with sexuality. So then in the, um, strategy to protect that is that children or adults will try to avoid rejection by perfecting themselves, hoping that through, hoping that they can win love through looks or performance. So basically Facebook and Instagram is like a giant 
attack. It's like a giant strategy to protect an attachment relationship. Like think about how, like, even in people who don't have like major childhood trauma, like this stuff is all over the place, these sort of maladaptive strategies. So thanks for giving me a moment to share those, but just to show you, um, I think even if people don't want to focus on the trauma aspect of it, which is fine. I just don't want to neglect that, that this may be something that's contributing to our overall well-being as surgeons, you know? Okay. So let's get back on the highway here with you, winter dreams. Um, and returning to the example that you gave about, you know, now not having the safety net and then worrying about things that are going to happen. But then interestingly, you get to the actual event and you do well. So what, what do you think is happening there? I don't know, to be honest. I, I mean, sometimes when I'm in the operating room, like, you know, I've, I call for a partner to, you know, come and take a look and just make sure. And so like, I'm seeking that reinforcement, I guess, of, you know, having somebody else agree. And I, I'm getting better at not always doing that, but I don't know. Sometimes when I'm, you know, asking for an opinion, I'm like, you know, do I really, in my head, I'm like, do I really need this? Like, I need to move past this. Um, at some point, you know, you're always going to have some crazy stuff that you need some help with. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I'm talking in circles this morning. No, you're not talking in circles. I think this is something that affects everybody and it affects people at all of their career. And I don't think it goes away. I think, and I don't think that it should go away to be honest with you. Like we're not, we're not gods and we don't have all of the answers and we may have a pretty good idea of what to do, but I don't think there's any harm in, um, in bouncing ideas off of other people or getting feedback from other people. But kind of like what we talked about on Thursday is at what point does that become dysfunctional for you? Like, what are you making it mean about you to get opinions from other people? Because I get opinions from people all the time. I've been in practice for 12 years. Like I'm constantly asking, I actually like it. So that's I like it too, but I guess I, I'm internalizing a feeling of inadequacy because yeah. I don't have the answers, which that's exactly right. True, but that's exactly right. So you're making it mean something about you that you're asking these questions. And if you're making it mean that you're not adequate, then of course you're going to feel crappy and scared and anxious. But we know, we know why you do that. And if you, if you don't remember, I can just remind you. <laughs> I mean, we do that because number one, we're wired for negative bias. Number two, we're socially conditioned, not only as residents, socially conditioned to seek approval. We're also conditioned as women to not have an opinion that matters. I mean, that's my, that's my opinion. 
Um, <laughs> but I think it's true. And so we're, I mean, and th- those are powerful forces. Th- those contribute to belief systems that are incredibly hard to challenge. So, um, I mean, wow. I think it makes sense. I just, sorry, no, go you ahead. saying that just like brought up this huge thing of like, I talked a lot as a kid mm-hmm. and this ties in the whole trauma situation. This is just like, I was not expecting to go here this morning, but here we are. Um, and I talked, I was very shy in public, but at home, I talked a lot mm-hmm. to the point that, you know, my family didn't always acknowledge or listen to what I said, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which makes it feel discounted, like you said, and maybe that kind of plays into all of this. A hundred percent. Which I had never thought of before. A hundred percent. So your body remembers. And my guess is, is that when you're experiencing something like that now, your body is just like, well, this is what we do when, when we're talking. Like, this is what we do when we think we're talking too much. This is how your body responds. It's just like such an important awareness So can we talk again, you went into it briefly on Mm -hmm. uh, Thursday about the, what was it, I wrote it down, the somatic mindfulness. Yeah. And like how to like regulate your body when you're having kind of those feelings. 100%. So the, you know, we all know about the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic kind of on one end of the spectrum and then the parasympathetic on the other end of the spectrum. And then there's this middle area where it's kind of like a sweet spot, you know, and of course there are going to be times when we really need to be with autonomic tone. And there are going to be times when we really need to be with, um, I'm sorry, with we're really going to need to be in sympathetic tone. And then there's other times when we need to be in parasympathetic tone, but these swings back and forth, are hard for a human to kind of adjust to and can be really stressful. So um, the techniques are used to help kind of get towards that middle. Um, So you can probably scan at any given moment, you could probably scan and just understand, okay, is this like a sympathetic thing or a parasympathetic thing? So like, are you feeling kind of jacked? Like I just said, I know when I'm like, like, riding high, you know, and you can do strategies to help kind of calm that down. So those strategies would be like regular rhythmic, uh, movement. So of any kind, I actually learned this like 15 years ago when I was doing EMDR for my own childhood trauma and little did I know it would resurface you know, as an adult, it probably was even longer ago, maybe 20 years ago. Jeez Louise. I was like, a, I was in college. I think it might've been 20 years ago. Okay. So anyway, one of the things my EMDR therapist taught me was like, if when you feel yourself ratcheting up with that anxiousness, um, which you can identify in your own body by just doing a scan and you don't have to write anything down. You can just simply kind of make a little mental note, like, 
okay, my head is feeling like X, Y, or Z. My chest feels tight. My, um, I feel warm. Um, my shoulders are tingling. My fingers are tingling. I'm nauseous. Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you can kind of like scan for how you're feeling. And then you can start doing your deep breathing, which is good. And then you, I just tap like this, which you can do when you're sterile. You can just tap your arms. And sometimes I tap my feet too, which you can also do when you're sterile. Or sometimes I'll just be um, doing like little mini squats, which you can do when you're sterile and just get that regular rhythmic movement going. So I think that the whole idea of irrigation that everybody talks about, like when you don't know what to do, just irrigate. I think that's, I think that's like a surgeon's attempt to regulate their nervous system. I really, really do. Cause it just buys you a little bit of time and then you can just employ some strategy like that. Another thing you can do is if you have a window available, you can look out to the horizon and just scan with your eyes back and forth for two minutes or so. And um, you can turn your head too if you need to, um, taking deep breaths the whole time. Um, the physiologic sigh is a thing that is super fascinating. And this is, I heard about this from um, a guy, his last name's Huberman, I think. And he's a researcher out of Stanford, PhD neurobiologist who has studied physiologic size and it's where you do two inhales followed by an audible exhale and research has shown that if you do that three times, there's like a measurable decrease in your sympathetic tone. So it's like that, um, two inhales followed by an exhale, singing, moaning, humming, all kind of like stimulate the soft palate, which helps bring down your sympathetic tone. So I, I sing all the time to, to the point where I annoy people. And that's why it's because I'm, it, it was like a, my own unconscious way to regulate my nervous system, which is so fascinating. Um, you can take a warm bath, go for a walk. Um, if you're actually feeling like you're too far on the parasympathetic side, you could do something to kind of give yourself a little boost, like maybe go up and down some stairs, um, talk to another person. Some people advocate actually like yelling into pillows, punching pillows. Um, I don't advocate punching anything because I take too much to care of too many hand fractures, but, um, <laughs> so, so those, that's just a few, but, and a lot of times people can adapt their own strategy um, that works for them. Like you can play around with it, but, uh, it's funny now that I'm aware of these things, it's like, I'm doing this stuff without thinking about it all day long. Hmm. Yeah. And a lot of the strategies are available to you while you're scrubbed in, which is awesome. Um, okay. So back, oh, th those are strategies to regulate your nervous system, but you were talking about the somatic mindfulness. See, so look at my tangents I go off on. Um, so the other thing you can do, which is really fascinating is not only identify kind of the, the sensations you have in your body, but this is a really powerful technique to, um, get yourself kind of into the present moment. So for example, when you're having that, um, anticipatory 
period leading up to the actual event. Just if you can find yourself and take some deep breaths and then start to, again, scan your body, but in a different way. So this is really fascinating. Like draw your attention to how your foot feels in your shoe and then move your way up. Like what does your pant leg feel like on the skin of your lower leg? And then like, if you're sitting in a chair, you can think, okay, my thigh is touching the chair and what like really tune in to the feeling of your thigh touching the chair. And then like, keep working your way all the way up to like what your body feels like contacting, whatever it is at that time. And it's really remarkable when you do that, when you're in that anticipatory, like excited phase and you put your body into the moment, it really, it's like a laser right to the moment. And it can help reduce some of that anticipatory anxiety. Um, I do that one a lot. And, uh, as I learn more about somatic mindfulness, I'll share it, but the whole idea is, is that when, when we're talking about this bottom up approach, going from like the actual emotion as it exists in your body and tuning into that, experiencing that, and then regulating it, then actually has this upward, um, cascade that goes then into your brain, like up through the different levels of the brain. And then it's allows your prefrontal cortex to function optimally, basically, because it, your cortisol is reduced. You're like out of your stress response. You're out of your survival response. It really allows your prefrontal cortex to come online. And the cool thing is, is that then the top-down approach is more effective. And it's just like this feedback loop that is, you know, a circuit that's now complete. And the more people practice somatic mindfulness, the more their capacity increases, like their capacity to, gosh, tolerate sounds kind of bad. It's like, it's like we're trying to increase our capacity to tolerate suffering or something, but it's, that's kind of what it is, but kind of not. It's like to, to train your body to be able to be in the here and now and not, um, to experience not, more before you have that visceral reaction. Right. Or learn from the visceral reaction and then get yourself back into the present moment so that you're not basically robbed of the present moment by your trauma response. Because That's really, fascinating and helpful. Yeah. It's so, so stinking fascinating. I'm like, I'm dying. I can't wait. So when this class is over, I'm for sure going to take the next one. My husband's going to love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, the funny thing is, is I've been kind of practicing these things. Um, I don't know. I've been in this class for a few months now, but I've I've been learning about it before that and practicing ever since I read that how to quit drinking book, uh, because the woman in that book talked about how she had like a card that she kept with her at all times with 10 things she could do when she got an urge to take a drink. So it's kind of similar because an urge is a really unpleasant feeling. And so she had these, this list of 10 things she could do right away so that she could help feel the urge, move through it and not take a drink. And I'm like, that's really smart because 
I don't have the urge to take a drink, but I have a lot of unpleasant emotions. And if I just have this like list of tools I can use, then I can probably like get through the day a lot with a lot more facility and a lot less unpleasantness. And it's not to not feel the feeling. Like the whole point is to feel the feeling because this is so fascinating. I learned this in my trauma class the other day. Somebody said the majority of feelings actually only last 90 seconds. But when we are like engaging with that, like when we're resisting it, when we're trying to avoid it, when we're like against the feeling, that makes it last way longer. So if we can just learn strategies to just allow the feeling to kind of crest and then come back down, it's like max 90 seconds. So who can't do something for 90 seconds? To me, just knowing that that's like the amount of time it's actually going to last is actually really helpful. Um, gosh, I've just been like talking, talking. Um, we have somebody else that joined. So let me just pause and see if there's anything that any that this other person wants to talk about. Definitely. Yeah. Because um, um, the other for the other person that just joined, we're just kind of having a conversation. We're not really doing like the whole model thing today, but let me... Um, let me rename you and I'll just, I'll just allow you to talk. You don't have to, but I'll just allow you to talk and just see if there's anything that you want to add to the discussion. Um, no, I like was just listening in and um, kind of had some of the same experiences. I'm three years out. So I totally understand that whole, like you get in a situation and you feel like you constantly or either like second guessing yourself or wanting feedback or wanting just one other person to be like, yes, <laughs> you're doing the right <laughs> thing. So it does, it does get better. It does get better just with time. I do agree with that. And I think also to what Jess says, I don't think it's wrong to, to constantly reflect on other people's opinions, et cetera. And then as you get more experience, then you start to filter more the opinions you do get that <laughs> instead of just being that they gave me this opinion, I have to take it. It becomes more of a, I honor that opinion, but I don't necessarily agree with it. So that is such a good point. Uh, you're right. I didn't think of it that way. It's true. I love getting opinions. I mean, that's why I love our meetings. We have a meeting every week where we talk about everything that happened the week before and then discuss everything that's coming up. And I love it because I love to hear about how other people approach problems, but you're right. Like now I'm like, um, yeah, <laughs> like maybe that'll work for you, but I, I think I'll, I'll continue to go my own direction here. So I think that's a really important point. It's like an evolution in what you make it mean. And the concept I used for that was manuals, which is that like they have a manual for like how to treat that patient and like, and it's okay for their manual to be strong and for my manual to be different. <laughs> That's exactly right. Absolutely. Um, I also like to think too, that other people, you know, they're all operating in their own models all the time. And we never know kind of like, what's fueling that. We don't know how they're kind of making up their own stories. Like all we can know is how we're making up our own stories. Um, 
And again, I think like just looking at what am I making this mean about me is so critical because if you're making it mean that you're inadequate or unworthy, then of course that's going to feed into not only an unpleasant experience, but um, it basically maintains like a, um, like a negative self-concept. Like I don't have, like, I'm not confident or I'm not this or not that it's like a, it's like a, in a lacking sort of arena. Whereas if it's like, well, of course I ask people what to do. Like who doesn't number one, number two, um, X amount out of residency. And this is just how you learn. And this is just the next step, the next evolution in, you know, being a surgeon every day is a school day. I say that to myself frequently. And then like, what, you know, making that mean like, well, this, of course, of course I'm doing this, but the, the trick is the belief system and understanding that and you don't even have to really make it go away. You don't even have to be like, you know, well, I just have to change my belief system because I mean, those things are entrenched in us. They are, it's like a, it's like a grip sometimes, but we can loosen the grip by just saying, well, you know, that's completely normal that that's what my brain is making this mean. There's nothing wrong with it. I understand why this is why my brain is making it mean this. Now I have an opportunity to consider something different. And sometimes I might be over here where I'm making it mean that I'm inadequate. And sometimes I'm not, it's like, I, I do this with myself too. It's like just offering up a little space for that, that negative belief system to even exist. Because once you open up space around it, that's what then allows it to kind of come up and be liberated. But as long as we're kind of, you know, resisting it, being mad at it, it kind of makes it dig in. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. So is there anything else we want to talk about? No, I think that was all good. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about my bad haircut. Look at this. So I tried to do this is obviously not coaching, but I tried to, I got my hair cut short, which I like, I kind of do this through life. I go long, short, long, short. And, um, I try to do those beach waves, but this is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. well, all right. You can't tell on zoom until you point it out. So, okay. Awesome. So glad I did then. <laughs> and at least you got a haircut. I went to schedule an appointment and I realized I haven't had my haircut since February. I saw, I thought I'd been like maybe four or five months instead of my usual, like three Uh and nope, it's been like 10 and my appointments (laughs) now on January 31st. So I will go almost an entire year without a haircut. (laughs) Oh Oh my goodness. All right. Well, what a great conversation to have this morning. Thank you so much. Winter dreams and starlight for contributing. Um, Yeah, there's nothing wrong with signing off early. So I guess we'll just leave it at that. And I hope you all have a really wonderful rest of your weekend. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. Bye-bye.